Thank you, John. Whether you've gathered here this morning in person or you're worshiping with us at home, I'm, I'm just thrilled that you could be here at Chantilly Bible Church as we now open up God's Word together. As uh, John read earlier, we are continuing today in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, and we are up to chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I'd like to invite you to turn with me, please, to chapter 5 of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. As you are turning there, I want to start by kind of asking you to think with me for a moment about a question that I've been wrestling with all this week as I was preparing for to present this sermon, and that is this. In all the craziness of this thing we call life, how often do we honestly stop and ask ourselves, am I truly living a life that matters? I know I've been thinking a lot about that lately. Maybe I'm getting old and sentimental. But, you know, in the craziness of our life, all the stuff that we're doing, do we ever just honestly stop before God and say, am I living a life that truly matters? And I'm asking that question this morning because as I've been digging into the words of Christ here in verses 13 through 16, I believe Jesus is saying that not only is it possible to live a life that truly matters, but it's expected of his obedient followers. We are called brothers and sisters in Christ to impact the world around us. But how? Or, or why even? Is it because uh, we have such great power and resources? Is it because of our great positions and stature in life? Is it because we are so smart and so strong or so gifted? Absolutely not. Jesus himself would tell us it's because you belong to me. You're part of my kingdom. I remember years ago, I was in Ocean City for a teaching time at the Tabernacle, rather popular spot in the summertime for people on vacation to visit, and they bring in some pretty big speakers, and they had Tony Campola preaching that week, and, and he shared a story about a friend who was walking through the midway of a county fair, and he encountered this cute, tiny little girl, and this little girl was uh, in the process of carrying this big fluff of cotton candy, a stick, you know, on a cotton candy, and it was so big it almost hit her face. And so he said to the little girl, how can a little girl like you eat all that cotton candy? And she paused and she said, well, mister, I'm really much bigger on the inside than I am on the outside. <laughs> and you know, folks, that is essentially what I believe Jesus is saying to us, his church, this morning. On the outside, we may seem rather insignificant, nothing. But on the inside, as we've been hearing in the Sermon of the Mount from Jesus, we're as big as the kingdom, as big as the power, as big as the glory of our God inside of us as he's working in our hearts. And the truth is, it's God's desire that we make a difference, and he's equipped us to do so. Now, interestingly, if you read the Beatitudes and you read what we've just read here, because of behavior and because of the service and the attitudes that Jesus is calling upon, commanding his followers to, 
possessed are so radically different from the rest of the world. Many will falsely teach, well, that means we should withdraw from the world. However, I believe as I dug into this text this week, that's not the heart of Jesus at all. The heart of Jesus is absolute opposite of that. He wants his children, his disciples, to engage, to influence, and to impact this world with the good news of the gospel, with the truth and the love that we possess as his children. Amazingly, we... Let this sink in for a few minutes, if you would. Amazingly, we dear brothers and sisters in Christ, have been blessed with the incredible privilege, the awesome opportunity to show people the difference that a relationship with Jesus can bring to our hearts, to our individual lives, to our church, and to our culture and communities. And here in chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, Jesus, building upon the Beatitudes that he's just so beautifully shared with us, now he's going to present two very common, very practical illustrations that his listeners and all of us, I think, will be able to understand the emphasis of that truth, the highlight of that truth. Look at verse 13. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Look very carefully with me at how Jesus opens this passage. You are the salt of the earth. When we get down to verse 14, Jesus will say, likewise, you are the light of the world. And it's interesting. Notice Jesus does not say you can be salt or that you should be light. Rather, he says you are these things. And interestingly, the pronoun you in both cases here, in both verses, is a plural and an emphatic emphasis. In other words, Jesus was pointing right at them. He's pointing right at all of us today as his redeemed people. And he's declaring to us, you all, you all are all of these things, light and salt. It's a declaration by our king himself. What an amazing honor. What an awesome privilege we have been given by our king. So what did Jesus mean? What is he communicating to us when he identifies us as salt of the earth, our light of, of, of the world? Let's start with the salt of the earth. Let me give you some thoughts here. First, I want you to understand that in this day and age, you'll never hear people running to McDonald's or Burger King and holding up them for a packet of salt. It's plentiful and cheap, right? However, in the ancient world, when Jesus was speaking there in Palestine, salt was, and this is my first point, a rare and precious commodity. It was a rare and a precious commodity. People who wanted to buy something would pay with salt in the same way that we use money today. People treasured salt in the same way that we might value gold or silver today. Salt was so valuable that the Roman soldiers were often paid with salt. And their monthly wage was called a salarium from which we get our English word salary. And if you were a lousy soldier, you weren't worth your salt. Yes, that's where that phrase came from if you wondered. And did you know that wars have been fought over salt? 
In December of 1864, the Union Army attacked and dismantled a salt mine in a town in southwest Virginia <laughs> called Saltville, obviously, cutting off the major source of salt to the south during that effort. Now, why this strategic thing? What was so important? Well, think about it. We use salt to preserve meat and cure leather, uh, making shoes available for the soldiers. And here's the thing. It's hard to fight and win a war when you don't have shoes and food on your, and, and to eat. And finally, here's something interesting. Salt was often associated with friendships and covenants. To spill salt, therefore, was often considered a shameful act of betrayal. And many suggest, I found this very interesting, that this is probably the reason why Leonardo da Vinci painted the Last Supper. When he did that, he depicted Judas knocking over the salt seeker and spilling salt onto the table. So... We understand here that salt is a precious commodity, a pure commodity. And the second thing I want you to see here today is it's a critical and a beneficial mineral. Salt is a critical and a beneficial mineral. In fact, I was reading this week that the salt industry claims that salt has over 1,400 different practical usages. It, it, it raises the boiling point of water. It lowers the freezing point of ice. It removes rust. It puts out grease fires. It makes dripless candles. I didn't know that. It, it gives freshness to cut flowers. It kills poison ivy. It trains, it treats sprains, and it kills germs. It burned like crazy, but people would actually put salt into an open wound because it would cleanse its impurities. Now you're saying, what about the people that were sitting there listening to Jesus. What were they coming away from, from this illustration? Besides being a rare and precious commodity, which I think all of them would have immediately recognized with salt, what was popping into their hearts and the minds when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth? Let me give you three thoughts. Write these down. Think about them with me this week. First, salt provides flavoring. Salt provides flavoring. It makes things taste better, right? And that's why we put salt on everything, from eggs and grits to popcorn. And I learned this week that in the South, they actually put it on watermelon. I've never tried that. In Job chapter 6, Job asked this question, can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the juice or the mallow, the, the white of an egg? The application, I think, is pretty clear. Just as salt's primary function was a flavor saver, we Christians who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who know his word, are living out the character of Christ, are supposed to add spice and zest and vigor to life. Sadly, I think along the way, we've kind of gone in the opposite direction. We started inadvertently, I think. Uh, drearily advertising the Christian faith by focusing on what we can't do and heavy on contact at the loss of the lightness, putting a lightness on the great joy and the satisfaction and the redemption and the forgiveness and grace that God brings to our lives. In contrast, we're supposed to be flavor enhancers. We are to live our lives to improve the quality of life of those around us. For example, we might consider bringing donuts on a dreary Monday morning. Got that, staff? I'm just checking on you. 
We can help someone out of loneliness in their life by visiting them in a, in a nursing home or, or dropping by a neighbor who you know is lonely. We can influence our community with zest and joy for Christ by assisting in things like PTA or community associations or local service opportunities or serving as a coach on a sports team in your community. Salty Christians invest in others in an effort to improve the taste of living in the name of Jesus Christ. And so let me urge all of you to think this week. When you get up in the morning, how, Lord, can I bring zest or flavor or a higher quality of life to the people that I love or that I touch this day? How, Lord, can I share the joy, live out the satisfaction and the forgiveness that I have received from my king in a way that is positively flavoring the relationships of those around me. Are you, dear brother or sister in Christ, am I a flavoring, enhancing Christian? I thought a lot about that this week. Salt is also second, a preservative. We all know before refrigeration and canning, Meats were primarily preserved by rubbing them down with salt. And this salt-cured meat was safe, from what I understand, to eat for weeks and months afterwards. And just like salt, by God's grace and the presence of the Holy Spirit working in and through us, we have been given the great privilege and the power to help preserve the purity of this world. Imagine what this world would be like without the influence of Holy Spirit-filled Christians in the church today. It would be evil completely unrestrained. There's also another powerful impact of salt that comes to mind. I remember several years ago as a teen, we were up at Hilltop Ranch on a retreat, and during the retreat, the keynote speaker quoted Matthew 5.13, you are the salt of the earth. And then he broke us into small groups and he asked us to think of the many practical and share them amongst ourselves uses of salt. Several good answers, just like some of the ones I shared with you. And then one of the girls kind of giggled and she kind of said in the group, salt makes me thirsty. And everybody kind of giggled at first along with her, but then we suddenly got very quiet and seriously began to think to ourselves, have I ever made anyone thirsty For the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in addition to being a preservative and providing flavoring, may I add to that list, salt makes us thirsty. Salt makes us thirsty. You know, many Christians then and today, excuse me, um, search for water from, from their own cisterns. The wells that they dig and the clouded streams and rivers that they look for to bring them satisfaction and telling themselves every day that their circumstances are wonderful, even if they're not. But here's the thing. Regardless of where they drink from, they find themselves unsatisfied and still thirsty. Why? The reason is simple. The truth is, Jesus is the only true stream of living water. He is the source of restoration and the cure for thirstiness. So how do they hear about that? Jesus reminds us, doesn't he, in John chapter 4, verse 13 and 14, when he comes to the woman of the well, and here's what he promises. Do we really understand this? Everyone who drinks of this well will thirst again. 
But whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing, springing up to eternity. Folks, I hope we realize today that Jesus Christ is the only real thirst quencher. And when we as believers are interacting with, in the sphere of areas with lost people, I believe Jesus is saying to us here, because of our relationship with him, we should be giving evidence of a genuine joy, a genuine satisfaction, a genuine peace that makes them look to us and say, something I want, what do you got that I, I don't have? How can I be like you? I wonder, can that be said of us today? How, how are we living our lives? Are we living in a way of serving and loving and speaking and hoping and working through life's trials in such a way that it's making people thirsty for the gospel, for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ? There's a very serious warning in verse 13 that I don't want to miss. Look at what it says. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Anybody that knows me knows I'm no chemistry major, not by even the remotest possibility. But any chemistry teacher, as I read this week, will tell you it's impossible in a way for salt to become unsalty. Sodium chloride is among the most stable compounds in all the universe. It doesn't change, it never loses its character. But I want you to know there is a great deal of truth in what Jesus is saying here. You see, much of the salt that was used in Palestine came from the Dead Sea, which was more than a mile and a half below sea level. And the waters from the Sea of Galilee would flow into the Jordan River, and they would flow into the Dead Sea. And then they, once they got there, there was no place for them to go. And as a result, the sun would evaporate the waters and leave behind this chunky white powder that was made up of a combination of salt and minerals. The powder contained salt to season their meat and flavor their soup, so the people were ready to use that. But it was also mixed with a lot of minerals, not pure sodium chloride. And that's made it possible that with just a little bit of dampness in the air for salt to be dissolved and basically dissipate. And when Jesus says that happens here, it is no good for nothing but to be thrown under feet and trampled on. Now you might be thinking, what does that have to do with us? What does that have to do with me? Well, the truth is, brothers and sisters in Christ, is that we can get so full of the things of this world that the flavor of Christ in us can become diluted. I believe Jesus is talking here about compromise. He's talking about compromising, causing us to lose our influence as salt. May God help us not to get so polluted and diluted with the things of this world that, that God can't use us like salt to make people thirsty to know Christ as their Lord, Savior, and king. Reading on now in verses 14 through 16, the Lord goes on to say, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. 
In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let me quickly point out here, and I hope we understand this, that the only reason that we can even think about being the light of the world is because Jesus, capital L, is the light of the world. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Church, what an honor. Think about this. What an honor it is that Jesus, our King, is willing to shine through us. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being on that hill and hearing this? Here was a diverse group of farmers and fishermen and tax collectors and housewives, this tiny, remote village, an obscured part of the world, and Jesus is saying to them, you are the light of the world. Talk about crazy. I can almost feel me. Huh? Are you? It must have been sounding absurd to them, even uh, as we would find that absurd. Only God, only Christ could have seen through that motley crew as he sees us today and says, you indeed can change the world forever. And, and the fact that we're sitting here today tells us that they did. They did go on to do that. Some of you may be sitting here today and saying, I'm so insignificant. What could I add? But let me assure you today that you as a Christian and a follower of Jesus Christ can make an incredible difference. You and I, Jesus says, are the light of the world. So what does that mean practically? Let me give you a few possibilities. First, I would say to you that light is meant to be seen. I have a suspicion that many of us in this electrified Western world have no idea of what it really means to be in the dark. I'll never forget one of the times with our seniors here, the Chinese seniors, we went to the Luray Caverns, and uh, we were halfway through the tour. I don't like being closed up like that anyway, but suddenly the guide says, I want to show you what true darkness is. Click, darkness. I mean, total darkness. And uh, it was so dark, you could hear your heart beating. You could feel that darkness all around you. If you put your hand in front of your face, you couldn't even see it. I was like ready for them to turn that light on. And Jesus says, the world that you serve in is that dark. The world that you serve and share me in is that black. And it's in this sort of context that the flickering wick of, of, of the smallest of olive lamps oil lamps shed a wonderful light. And thus, our faith, says Jesus, ought to be visible to everyone who knows us. They ought to be able to see Jesus Christ living in us. Who, after all, Jesus asks here, lights a lamp and then puts a basket over it. Who lights a lamp and doesn't put it on a stand so that everyone can enjoy that light? Personally, I know that, that I've not always been faithful to make my light shine like that. I've been quiet when I should have spoken up. I've gone along with the crowd 
rather than standing for Jesus. I've denied the truth on occasions because I was too embarrassed to stand up for Jesus. I've let sin dim my witness for Christ. I've not taken the time to lovingly explain the truth to people like I should. I've seen needs and I've walked right by them. This can happen too when we're doing our jobs without the heart and for excellence and we're not lighting that light in our jobs. The simple truth is that Jesus didn't light our light so that we could hide it under a basket. Rather, we're to be like that city on a hill or that lamp on a lampstand where our light is meant to light everyone. I got to say something here. Unfortunately, I've encountered too many Christians that have allowed this command, that have allowed their zeal and their passion to become almost obnoxious. And that's why I so appreciate the words of Peter, the instructions of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, where he says, but in your heart, honor Christ, the Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to everyone Anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it. Don't miss this. Yet do this with gentleness and respect. Yes, we must always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is ours in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that doesn't give us a license to be harsh are even disrespectful to the people with different beliefs in us. So I urge all of us to, to be able to defend the gospel, that hope we have. Speak out boldly, but let us, dear friends, do so with gentleness and with respect and with the compassion of Christ. Lights are also met second to warn. We've all seen the lighthouse and how many ships over the years have avoided dangerous rocks because the warning of a lighthouse. Now, I have to admit that it's not always easy to warn someone when they're heading in the wrong direction. They don't always understand. But we too, like that lighthouse, must be willing to be that warning light to help them see the right way. Johann Neetling once said this, in a dark and scary world, anxious people eagerly look for a light that will that is, that is able to give them hope, comfort, and a sense of security. For people who have lost loved ones, for people who are struggling to make ends meet, for people who feel they are at the end of the rope, for people who question their worth and value, you and I are many versions of Jesus, the light of the world. What a privilege. And finally, third, light is meant to direct. This reminded me of several years of conversation I had uh, with someone who recently had become a Christian. He had made a decision and he told me, I'm all in, Milton. It was so exciting. It was just an absolute joy to be able to experience that conversation and take part in it. What I didn't realize what was going to happen is that I found myself as part of his journey. 
There was a comment that he made in that conversation that probably was totally insignificant to him, was very, very significant to me and should be to all followers of Christ as a reminder. Long and short of the story, he mentioned there was a moment where Christianity seemed to be attractive to him. And he happened to say that that was through a conversation that we had had together. And right there and then, he said, I made a decision. I was going to watch you. <laughs> That's a little scary. He decided he was going to watch my life, how I interacted with people, how I worked through problems. And here's the thing. I don't think this friend is the only one in this practice. I'm confident today that there are people out there who don't yet know Jesus as their Savior who are watching believers, you and me, every day. They don't attend church. They may not hang out with you all the time, but make no mistake, the people around you are watching you. If, for example, you're playing as a Christian on an athletic team with non-Christians, people are watching. You're a light in the darkness. If you're a Christian family in a mostly non-Christian neighborhood, people are watching. You are a light in the darkness. The same is true if you are the only Christian nurse on a floor or you are a professional in your firm as a Christian or a salesperson in your district. You are a light in the darkness, a servant of Christ who is being watched and who is giving off light. By your life, you're giving a very distinct message that people are watching and learning from. And parents, if you are raising children, your children are watching you. What are you teaching them about what it means to follow Jesus? On the job, what are people learning from you? The neighborhood, as I just mentioned. I heard a poem a number of years ago that I've never forgotten. In fact, I memorized it over the years. It goes like this. You are writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the things that you do and the words that you say. Men, read what you write, whether faithful or true. Hey, Christian, what is the gospel according to you? Light is meant to direct. In what way are you directing people? As we begin to wrap up here and we prepare to celebrate the Lord's table here, I was reminded of a story that occurred in the life of Scottish novelist Robert Louis Stevenson. For those unfamiliar with Robert Louis Stevenson, he wrote such works as Treasure Island and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. When he was a child, Robert Louis Stevenson was quite ill for a good deal of his childhood. And uh, one night when he was quite sick, um, his nurse found him with his nose up against a window, a frosty window pane. And immediately the nurse said, fussing at him, child, you're going to catch the death of a cold. Move away from that window. But Robert didn't budge. He was mesmerized, you see, as he watched an old lamplighter going along and lighting the lamps on the street. 
And pointing to the window, Robert said this. It just puts such a visual in my mind. Look, there is a man poking holes in the darkness. That's what I believe Jesus is calling us to do with this second illustration. Poke holes in the darkness. Why? Our text tells us in verse 16 why. That men may see your good works and glorify our heavenly father. That's the key motive behind living out this Christian life and the instructions that God is giving us here in his word. It should be so obvious, Jesus says, by our works that we belong to Jesus so that those who see us will give God the credit and give him the glory. Are you exercising a Christ-like influence in the world around you? That is what God has called you and me to do. And only then do I believe, as I opened with, do I believe that our lives are truly mattering, making a genuine impact for the world. So let us, right, leave here today determined with the power and strength of our king to be salty and light in this dark world. Punch holes in the darkness. Amen? Thank you, Father, for this time. As we think about these truths throughout the week, I pray that our lives, Lord, would truly matter. Bless our time now around your table. May it encourage us and strengthen us as we seek to serve you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Pastor Milt, for a very good word. Um, so along with being salt and light, when's the last time you uh, seasoned your food with a single grain of salt? Or when's the last time you drove by a city sign that said city, whatever, population one? Not really, right? Because if you look at the passages that Milt just shared, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. That word you, that's a plural pronoun. You all, or in the original Aramaic, y'all. <laughs> or maybe that's Texan. The idea is to poke holes in the dark like Milt just challenges to is not an individual act, but it's an act of a collective group of people together, a common, unified group of people. And what is our common unity or our communion? It's Jesus. It's the gospel hope. The thing that binds us together is that the light of the world, we just talked about, came into the darkness, not just the darkness of the world, but the darkness of our own sin and heart. And his light and his righteousness, he gives to us and took our darkness of our sin on the cross, nailing it, canceling the debt. And when he rose again to new life, he rises us with him to be the salt and light and the city on the hill that he calls us to. So we remember what is our common unity in being salt and light? It is the gospel hope of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to take together to remind us of how we can be salt and light is communion. So the way that we will do communion here, I'll invite those to come up if you want to serve, is you'll see uh, around the room, we have a few tables in the back, some tables up front here. What we want to give you in just a minute is a chance 
for you before the Lord just to sit, examine your heart, remind yourself of the incredible love and mercy that Jesus has for you in rescuing you. But also remind yourself that you are the salt and light and maybe allow God to speak to you. Where is he calling you to poke a hole in the darkness? Where is he calling you to be a salt to the earth? And then when you feel ready, you can come up to a table, whichever one's closest to you, get the elements, go back to your seat. I will encourage you to maybe go ahead and open it up a little bit. The packets can be tough. But after we all come back together, we will take our communion. We'll celebrate our common unity in Christ together uh, as we worship. So when you're ready, you can go to the table to receive an element.